Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So welcome back to The Thistle. We are here for a very special episode with Mark Evans. Um, a, bit, a bit of background about Mark. Um, he was director of rugby at Saracens and then... CEO at Harlequins before turning to the dark side, moving to Rugby League with the Melbourne Storm in Australia, um, and also chairing the Vitality Netball Super League in the UK. Um, most recently, he was in charge of the Western Forces re-entry to professional rugby via Andrew Forrest's Global Rapid Rugby. Um, and he's also authored the book Unholy Union, which is a, a fascinating look at how rugby has dealt with the sport becoming professional that I would I would highly recommend people getting their hands on. Um, Mark, how are you? I'm very, very well, thank you, and, and thanks for inviting me on. No, absolute pleasure. Um, thanks so much for taking the time. So, Mark, you've, you've clearly had a, a sort of varied and, and really fascinating career. Um, you, you've been described in, in some media outlets as a kind of a, a free thinker within rugby, um, and even rugby's iconoclast-in-chief in Um would you agree with this assessment? And, and how would you sort of sum up your career to date? Oh, no, I wouldn't agree with the assessment. Actually, I think I've got a, I'm a, quite a traditionalist at, at heart. Um, I, I suppose... I, 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 I think, no, I, I wouldn't agree with it, actually. I think I've got a, a sort of... Uh, but I do like to... I am quite passionate about trying to grow the game. And I'm... I do feel that uh, in lots of its traditional territories, um, we don't organise it in the most sensible way to, to, to drive things forward, given that, you know, like all sports, rugby has got certain challenges. Mm. Um, and, and I get very irritated, I suppose, by it can be a little bit pompous. And I hate this idea that rugby is a middle class sport because I was brought up in. In South Wales, mm. uh, although I, I define as British um, because I've got a 
a Glaswegian mother, a Welsh father, and I was born, albeit not for very long, in England and brought up in Wales, and all my grandparents are Irish. So I, 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 I very strongly to them. Um, it'd be hard to be anything else. But I, I, I grew up in, a, in an area where, where rugby was played by everybody across the classes. Um, and, and I've always felt it's pigeonholed itself far too far too comfortably and accepted this idea that it was really a game for largely, you know, private schools mm. and, and class kids. And then, you know, coming from where I come from and, you know, parts of the West Country and parts of South and France and, you know, go and tell that to somebody in Fiji or parts of I, I just find it incredibly unambitious. Mm. And um... So maybe that's, maybe that's where it comes from. I mean, really, that was what the book was about. It mm. was about, you know, I think the subtitle was, you know, when rugby collided with the modern world. And the idea was actually... We missed out as a sport on a hundred years, or on hundred, yeah, hundred years really between the, the split between rugby league and rugby union in eighteen ninety-five and professionalism in nineteen ninety-five. And a hundred years really passed when lots of other sports had its teething problems and made its mistakes and found its way. And, and, and rugby, we just sort of we didn't. We just sort of sat there pickled in aspic. Um, to a large degree, until the commercial pressures became so great that it had to change. Mm. So we have this image that I quite like, not mine. You know, my co-author, who's a, who's the wordsmith and, and far more erudite than myself, um, had this idea that rugby is like a slingshot, and it was held there for a hundred years and nothing moved, and then suddenly it was released and it was catapulted into the twenty-first century. Mm. And, and with all the problems that brings, and, and yet all the opportunities it brings. And that, that's really what it's about. It's about how does a sport that stayed still for so long is now like developing so quickly? How does it manage itself? Mm. That, that's really what it's about. Mm. And, and, and for the people who haven't read the book, I mean, how, how would you best sum up that inability of, of, of rugby as a sport to? embrace professionalism to to embrace modernization is it is it just because we you know professional rugby is um you know pretty immature in the context of other global sports like like football or are there any any sort of particular problems that the sport has, hasn't been able to overcome um i think there are so many different territories to be honest there's no one answer to that um i think in, in some areas it's to do with its historical um sort of the way it developed historically and its its heritage so it was quite colonial you know mm. with the exception of france um and uh, and it was and it had all this kind of very quite attractive i mean don't get me wrong i, I love bits of this that whole sort of the whole amateur ethos thing that was very very strong that comes from the english public school system mm. and I, I, I there were there were some good things about that uh, there, there really were but it, it, it got well past its sell-by date, and mm-hmm. and then I suppose I don't think the transition was particularly well managed, uh, particularly in England actually, and I also think people probably didn't learn look around globally and look at models that were successful. They sort of blindly went on, and to a degree, partly tried to copy football, which is a really big mistake because football's the exception. Mm. So it's the only true global sport. Um, it, it's, there, there is not really another genuinely global team sport that is played properly, not properly, 
but it's played significantly in a in all the major countries of the world that or even most of the major countries of the world that just isn't one um football is is the only one and and that's even quite recent i mean we used to be able to make the argument that well you say you're global but you haven't got the states you haven't got india and you haven't got china well that's an awful lot of people you haven't got mm. um but you can't really say that anymore <laughs> in the last 30 years it's, it's making big strides in india it's, it's made huge strides in the united states mm. and it's making a bit two steps forward one step back in china so it is a global sport um and therefore its market is so big that it can afford to make an awful lot of mistakes and still be very successful because it's so deeply ingrained in the culture of so many countries uh, and the reasons for that are, are many and various it's partly to do with uh, naval routes and it's partly to do with the ease playing it and it's partly to do with a whole load of other factors mm. um, which can't be replicated you know, if you hear, I, I, if there's one thing I could, I sort of, it makes me squirm and, and feel, you know, oh, here we go again. You know, people say, oh, yeah, but in football, I mean, no, no, please don't say that because it's a completely false analogy. You know, find me another sport that does what you think we should do mm. that isn't football. Um, because football, you know, what's happened in football? Well, it's a global sport and all the best players play in four leagues in northwest europe oh, it's just that mm. well fine um you know it doesn't matter which what where you're from you know not a single belgium international plays in belgium not a mm. single well that's not true anymore it used to be true of france but it's not anymore because since the investment yeah. in Paris saint-germain and, and and marseille that's not true uh, but still most don't and so all the talent is concentrated into four leagues well and that allowed market forces can just about work because the market is so damn big mm. there's no other sport that can do that so you, you're silly to try um anyway that's one of the mm. big risks through the through the thing and and so what um sort of through your experience of, of different sports and organizations what is there any mm. sport that kind of represents a, a good template for rugby to follow um it depends which, which country you're talking about. Um, so, for example, at its most basic, um, there are only maybe three countries in the world that have got a big enough rugby market to have a standalone national professional league. So England can do it. A, the market's big enough. Mm -hmm. France can do it. France is the biggest rugby market mm -hmm. in the world. Um, about 25 million people in France would say rugby is their sport of choice and that's the biggest rugby market in the world because mm. the size of the market is irrelevant it doesn't matter you know that there are over a billion people in China is largely irrelevant because hardly anyone plays it mm. doesn't matter it's a billion people uh, and the third one's Japan um, Japan uh, can and does support a solely domestic league but everybody else from South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, all the Celtic nations, Italy, et al. The United States might in time prove to be the fourth. Mm. Have to partner. They just have to partner. Um, if they want, you can still play rugby in, in a national league, but it, you can't play it full time. It, it, there aren't enough viewers, there aren't enough fans, there isn't a big enough market to generate the revenues you need to have. have 
let's say, a minimum of ten teams, or maybe even eight. It, it, it just, they just, it, they just aren't. Mm. And that's not. That's just a fact. Um, you know, everyone goes on, and there's a chapter in the book about what a, how well Ireland have managed the transition, and, and to a degree that is undoubtedly true. Mm. You know, Ireland's performance since '95 is way in advance of what it had been pre in, in most of the preceding decades. Mm-hmm. Um, but they couldn't survive on their own. Yeah, I mean, they they need Scotland, they need Wales, they need to play in a transnational competition because, unlike Gaelic football, for example, in the same country, um, it simply hasn't got a deep enough penetration into six million people to support a domestic league. Mm. And it, it, it's really interesting you say that because obviously, as you say, Ireland have handled that transition well, whereas someone like Scotland have gone from a position of you know, you mentioned it in the book, like winning six, winning five nations, um, having a pretty good record against the likes of Wales and Ireland to, in the professional era, doing pretty poorly. I mean, what what do you think were the, the main differences between Scotland and someone like Ireland through that period of transition? Mm. Well, I think you're cherry-picking a little bit, if you don't mind me saying. No, fair enough. You could, pick, you could pick another period in Scotland's pre- professional history when they were far, far worse than they have been since. So, you know, you go to the early 50s, what was it? Scotland went how many games without a win? Is it 51 to 55? Um, they were the Italy of their day. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, 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 Scotland's always, Scotland's a relatively, actually it's an interesting comparison isn't it, between Scotland and Ireland. Yeah? Um, roughly similar populations. Ireland's a bit bigger, isn't it? Ireland's about six and a bit, Scotland's mm-hmm. five and a bit. I think I've got that Something I don't think I'm too far out. Mm-hmm. Um, but Scotland, you look at the sporting landscape. Scotland football is the national game. Okay, professional football therefore takes a huge chunk of the viewing numbers and the physical attendees. Where this, and it's played at the same time of the year. Mm. Uh, the seasons are almost identical. You know, so traditionally September to May, exactly the same. Complete overlap. Um, Ireland, there isn't really another winter sport. The Gaelic sports are played between February and September. And it's the largest country in Europe without a professional football league. Mm. Uh, now, that, you cannot underestimate how important that is um, in terms of leaving a, a window open for another sport that is predominantly winter. The whole of the September to February window was effectively empty mm-hmm. and you know I'm sure you have seen where well, you see it because they come to the, 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 you know, the, the, the boats that leave Ireland North and the Republic every weekend during the football season for Glasgow Manchester yep. Liverpool yep. Uh, it's phenomenal mm. it's phenomenal um, you know countries much smaller than Ireland have got a professional football league you know Belgium's not much bigger not that much bigger than Ireland they've got their own Portugal, 9 million people. They've got their own. Yeah, Benfica, and mm. Porto, and all the rest of it. So, Scotland is more like that. It's more like Portugal and, and, and those sort of, which doesn't leave a lot of room for rugby, is the second winter sport. Mm-hmm. Whereas Ireland hasn't really got one. So, to say Ireland have managed it better, is may or may not be true. 
it's hard to measure that. What you can undoubtedly say is that the situation they inherited was significantly easier. Mm. And that meant you know, they, they, had a, they had an empty market with, no, with very little competition. And at the same time, um, they, had, they happened to be organized into four traditional provinces with heritage. Yeah. So they didn't have the sort of, and this is the Welsh argument always, that the Irish had, you know, Leinster and, Leinster and Munster and Ulster and, Con, and Connacht have, you know, they, they go back centuries above and beyond rugby, so you have a real sense of identity and belonging. Mm-hmm. You don't manufacture them. And I think there's something in that. However, I do think the Irish managed the, the rise of Connacht beautifully. I mean, I, I remember Connacht when they were, you know, there were a couple of thousand there if you were lucky on the race course, you know, and, and I remember taking teams there and it was, you know, it was, <laughs> didn't feel like much like mm-hmm. professional rugby at the time. Yeah. And there was a lot of criticism of the Irish Union that they were underfunding them and they weren't giving them, but actually they, they sort of had a plan and they, it took a while, but you know, they are a pretty strong province now. And mm. Who would ever have thought that 20 years ago where Gaelic was so dominant in Connacht? Um, Scotland, you know, a smaller, uh, you know, much more competitive. Um, the population spread is different in Scotland. You know, you've got your two very big cities, mm-hmm. you know, and they dominate the population density in a way that, all right, Dublin does dominate Ireland, I do accept that, you know, there are, you know, Cork and Limerick and, and, and Belfast are, you know, are not insignificant populations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think it was easier. I think maybe Scotland made a mistake of trying to do four at the beginning. Yeah. I thought that, I thought at the time that was that was extraordinarily ambitious given their well, given their spectator base as much mm. as their playing is. Mm. I mean, that's always been Scotland, not just Scotland, there are other countries similar. If you have a relatively small playing base, you will almost certainly have a relatively small uh, spectator base. Mm-hmm. Because the, the, the correlation between playing numbers and um, people who show an interest in turning up and paying good money to watch, either in person or on broadcast, is incredibly strong. Yeah. Um, you know, most of the research would say, well, I'll ask you the question now. I don't, I mean, we've never met, other than not prepared for this, but you obviously love, love the game, okay? Um, what, who took you to your very first rugby match? Uh, it would have been my dad. Dad, okay. Along with, I don't know, 95% of people, you were introduced to the game by somebody you loved who either played it or watched it themselves. Mm. Correct? Yeah, yeah. There we are, right. So, if your playing base isn't growing or very large... Growing a spectator base is really difficult. Mm. Really, really difficult. Unless, and here is the difference with Ireland again, unless the market we talk about is completely empty. So, in other words, there's nothing else to watch. And I remember in the 90s, it's in the book, but I remember in the late 90s with a bunch of friends who worked in sport, in different sports, and 
because we were a bit nerdy, you know, a couple of coaches and commercial guys and sponsorship guys and, and marketing people, and we used to play these stuff, right? If you could take over any sports club anywhere in Europe, who would it be? But you weren't allowed to say Leinster rugby because it was right. too easy. Okay, yeah. And that was before Leinster. Leinster at that stage were like tiny. Mm. But every business knew, God, look at that market. It's just empty. Mm. Come on, guys, get on with it. It's an open goal, and eventually they did. And, and look at it, look at it now. But you know, it was all all there waiting to be developed. Mm-hmm. Um, so unless you've got an empty market, the relationship between participation numbers and it hasn't got to be an adult even just to play it at school, to have played minis, to have or to know somebody who did, or yeah. a friend, or an uncle, or a um, 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 a sister, or you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. It, if you haven't got a big playing base, it's really difficult to get a sort of cultural roots down mm. for the sport. Mm. And without that, it's very hard to get people to watch it on a regular basis. They'll mm. turn up for a big event. They'll they'll try it for a, for a, for a while or if, as a novelty thing. They'll turn up for really big things like the World Cup or whatever. But week in, week out, season tickets, you know, turning up come hell or high water 10, 12 times a season. You've got to have an affinity with the sport. Mm. Um, And that's why it's always going to be a struggle in Scotland in a way that it shouldn't be, for instance, in Wales. Yeah. Now, Wales' problem is that it's even fewer people. You know, it's even fewer people. You know, it's, it's uh, don't play rugby in North Wales to any great degree. I apologise to my North Wales friends, but you know, it's very dominative of football at Merseyside, mm-hmm. to be honest. Although it's better than it was. But, you know, so when, whereby, you know, North Wales, um, all right, they, they, it does produce the odd player, of course, but, you know, not much in the way of people and not much in the way of fan base. So you're trying to build an audience in Wales from about two million people in in eighty mile corridor. Yeah. Where also got Cardiff City and Swansea City, who in the recent years both had stints in the Premiership, mm. and, and they also have the same problem Scotland has, which is they're sitting right next to an independent national league with higher wages. Yeah. And yeah. It's very very easy as a player. Easier from easier from Wales than it is from Scotland because from Wales you don't even have to move. Mm. You can live in Cap and play for Worcester yeah. or Bath, Bristol. Exeter's a bit of a stretch, but even that's possible. Mm. Um, so it's terribly easy. Um, so Wales, which has got the cultural residence um, and a bigger playing base, has got other issues as well. But um, but I've heard decent. And you know the numbers better than me, but I, I may have got this wrong, so you know, correct me if I have. But I think there's been a bit of movement on the participation in numbers in Scotland in the last twenty years. Um, yeah, I th- I, there has been. I think um, there's there's potentially some um, disagreement about how those players are actually defined and and accounted for. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I, th- there are, I think, so, yeah, the, the, the figures may be slightly massaged. But, yeah, I mean, you, you make the point in your book that, and this still just astounds me, that, you know, Sri Lanka, Kenya and China 
have more registered players in Scotland. Maybe China makes more sense just because of um, yeah. sort of the arithmetic. Yeah. But Italy has more registered players yeah. than Wales. Really, I didn't know that. Um, mm. But then I, I suppose that a couple of questions come from that. That you know is I think Sc- Scottish rugby is always sort of crying out for a third pro team, um, and I think that particularly after bad losses, that the, the clamour becomes greater. But but is that what? desirable? Yeah, I- Well, I think the thinking is that it's very difficult to build depth um, across key positions. So, for instance, at standoff, um, you know, you had a period of time where Finn Russell, Adam Hastings and Duncan Weir were all playing at Glasgow. Um, and, And the knock on effect of that is when there are injuries, which obviously happen in international rugby, you have to call up guys who haven't been playing any rugby, um, and I think you've you've you see you've seen that recently in Scottish camps, particularly around the front row, where our depth isn't great anyway. But someone like Murray McCallum, who a uh, tight head prop for Edinburgh, who has hardly played any professional games, he gets called up to a Scotland squad, and yeah. you know he'll he'll put in a good effort and 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 have a manful performance. But I think that. The, the logic is, or the argument behind another team is that it would give these guys um, chances to play week in, week out, and build depth across Scottish rugby, I think is the key argument, really. Okay, so that's interesting. But you'd, I'd immediately say, um, who's going to pay for it? Yeah. That's my first question. Uh, who's going to watch it? Um, why would you create another Scottish team in the Pro 14 stroke 16? Uh, so who's going to give up a team? Mm. Because otherwise that competition structure doesn't work. And I fully understand the argument of, of depth um, and only having two teams and therefore in positions you can be left um, looking pretty thin. Um, but I think the question there must be can, are you able to turn the what appears to be the disadvantage of being next to another big rugby market or next to two quite big rugby markets of England and France or even other teams in the Pro 14 I mean look how Ireland benefited Ireland have done again quite well Mm. And, and there are some signs of Scotland starting to do this, which might be a better and a more cost-effective solution. So Ty Byrne, you know, played with Scarlet yeah. magnificently. I wonder. And then as soon as he got really good, they they whistled and he went back because mm. he wanted to play for Ireland. I mean, I remember back in the day, um, uh, we had a we had a tight end when I was at Queens. Uh, goodness me, it's now Ross. Um, Oh, uh, Mike, Mike Ross. Mike Ross, of course, who we Dean, you know, picked out from a from a you know very modest sort of background, turned him into a starting tight end for us. Went to a you know advanced 
second in the league, decent mm. height and cup run. Then he was off. He went back to Ireland and got multiple caps. Now, you know, you, you you've got to be able. You know, you can't afford to stack because a people players spin their wheels and get frustrated and and all the rest of it. And it's just not a good. It's not a good use of talent. It's not good talent management. Um, but to say the answer to that is, oh, we'll put a third team, which means you have to create another squad of another forty players, mm. another forty salaries, and, and 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 I'm not sure Scotland have got the player base to populate. If, they, if they're not going to be full mainly of Scots people, what's the point? Scots qualified mm. players, what's the point? Mm. I mean, that I I I would take a lot of persuading that the answer to the debt problem, which I recognise is a genuine problem when you've only got two teams. I'm not convinced that having a third team is the is necessarily the answer. Mm. I think there are cleverer ways to ensure that if you have got four fly yards of you think professional quality, that you ensure that they're all playing. Mm. Now whether they're playing for Glasgow Edinburgh or elsewhere but can be called upon I think that's probably, and you might reach a tipping point at some point, whereby the participation numbers, if they, you know, and I take your point about how they're calculated. That's true in most countries. But if there, if if there is, and if there isn't, there has to be. And if there is, then great, keep it going. But if the participation numbers are particularly of juniors, or particularly of some six to eighteen-year-olds, are mm. growing. There may come a point where you hit a tipping point. Maybe you've still got the commercial problem of where's the audience, mm. where are they going to play, uh, and and frankly, I mean Glasgow have had, I mean Glasgow never have had their successes. The, 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 yeah. you know, and Glasgow, you know, I, I really admire what's happened in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I always thought, and I was wrong. Um, I always thought there were three cities in the UK where rugby would never get a serious hold because football was so strong. And mm-hmm. I thought Liverpool was one, and, mm-hmm. and, it, and neither codes correct Liverpool. Um, Manchester to a degree, but there was always sale. Mm-hmm. So that was that was all, you know, just about. I thought Glasgow, I just, just couldn't ever yeah. see it. Yeah. I think what's done there has been magnificent. Mm. Um, and my own was Newcastle, and uh, you know, one team town, and it's a religion. Um, mm. and, but the Falcons have just kept battering away, bashing away, bashing away. There are good people running them, and yeah. they carve out a niche, mm. a bit like Glasgow. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where would you put it, Matt? You can't put another team in Glasgow or another team in Edinburgh. So where'd you base it? And please yeah. don't say borders. <laughs> No, um, we, we've we done, um, another one of the hosts of the podcast, Alan's done a big sort of deep dive on this and he's factored in all these things like um, population base, income yeah. levels, um, professional football or other professional sports nearby. And it's, yeah. it's really difficult. Like, I think, I don't think anyone has come up with a good solution. And, and so far, I don't think... Mm-hmm. country so in England you go because you get the same arguments in England oh why can't we have a, a team in X you know put it, insert your town here 
And the answer is, well, have a look around, see the ones that have worked. The, 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 ta- the teams that have worked, uh, and, and I say worked in a very loose sense because the English club model is bust. Okay, so leaving, but, but has worked as well as any other team. Mm-hmm. That way, right? So try and separate the two issues. Um, so take Worcester, or take Exeter, or take Northampton. Okay? Um, what are they, what, what, what's the model? Or Gloucester. Take the model. Well, it's a town of at least 120, 130,000 people. Mm-hmm. Okay? Surrounded by another three hundred or so, making a sort of catchment area of half a million. Mm. Here's the here's the here's the thing, with no significant other football code. Yeah. Right. So Exeter football and Exeter, they have got a football team, but they're level four or five. Yeah. Gloucester has not got a well. I'm sure it has, but they have no professional football team. They've got one in Cheltenham, three, four miles mm-hmm. away, but smaller town. Worcester has only got a cricket club, right? Northampton, their team's level three or four, and they've got 300,000 people. Now, if you've got that, evidence suggests you can build a rugby town, a team representing that town stroke area successfully. But somewhere like Bedford, for instance, which is a rugby town, right? Mm. Bedford a rugby town, got no football, but it's only got 80,000 people. And you go too far up the road, you run into Northampton, right? It just hasn't, mm. you talk to Bedford, they have a lovely little ground, really good, great tradition, great mm-hmm. heritage, mm-hmm. they simply haven't got enough people, and wishing won't make it so. Mm. If I admire Bedford, they recognise we can only go to level two, where our market isn't big enough. Mm. And if you've got other in your area, like football or rugby league, it will not work. You need a much bigger town then. So Leeds is a really good example, right? Everyone says Yorkshire in England has got the second highest number of uh, clubs in the country after Surrey. Yeah. As a constituent body, okay? Six million people live in Yorkshire. I don't know how many rugby union clubs it's got, but it's a hell of a lot, okay? And Leeds has got 700,000 people living in the city. The county's got six million people. And you think, surely that must work. But they have tried it in Leeds time and time and time again. Mm. With absolutely first-class management, Gary Hetherington is one of the best rugby administrators of either code I've ever come across anywhere in the world. Um, but they've got football. Mm-hmm. Leeds United. They've got rugby league. Leeds yeah. Rider. Yeah. There's not enough left to support a premiership rugby team. Mm-hmm. And they've tried and tried and tried, and it can't be done. Now, if it can't be done in Leeds and Yorkshire with a market of 6 million and a city of 750,000, what on earth makes people think you can do it in an area with, I think, the last time I looked, a total population of about 50,000? the largest settlement of 22 yeah that there's um there's quite a good sort of i don't know if it's anecdotal but um story that leeds or yorkshire as a county at under 16 level has more registered players than the whole of scotland i wouldn't be at all surprised so you know that's, no, I don't know that's true i don't know if that's true but i wouldn't be 
the population's roughly similar. Yeah. It, it, it is probably... But, so, I think... And this is where it's... This is where things have changed. It used not to matter very much because the cost base was so low. So, Gala could be a premium team, okay? Mm-hmm. Or, or go to another country and say... You know, Limerick used to support three really quite strong teams, you know, in, in, in the city. Uh, the point is, you couldn't have three professional teams in Limerick. Mm. You had one professional team in the whole region. You know, you, it just... I know it's a terribly attractive idea, and it appeals to our sense of history and, yeah. and, and, and all the rest of it, but it's, <clears> totally, <throat> it's totally impractical. Mm. And it's... You know, it, we, it's, it's very interesting. You go, well, where would you put another team in England if you wanted to? You know, mm. a, a country mm. of you know fifty-five million people. And the answer is, there's there's very very few places. And by the way, you've got to have a stadium as well. Yeah, yeah. If you haven't got one. You've got to build one. Have you got Have you got a view on the 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 role of the exiles teams and you know someone like London Scottish as potentially being a a base for a a yeah. third pro team in first Scotland. Yeah, and I, I've heard the same thing about London Welsh and all the rest. Yeah. Of that. At the end of the day, what, what competition are they going to play? I mean, could could they? I mean, it does seem as if the pro pro sixteen or whatever it, it is is adding teams the whole time. So I think you know potentially the idea of a team based in London with that market with quite a strong exile population. Why Why do you want to go into a market where you've got London Irish, yeah, two miles up the road. Yeah, for sure. You've got Harlequins, three miles up the road. Mm. And you know, this is my same argument about Ealing Trailfinders, who are about five miles away. That that market is gone. That market is saturated. Mm. And I know people say, "Oh, that's that's not how we talk about sport." Well, no, I'm sorry, it is. That's exactly how you should. Talk about <laughs> yeah. Um, and. Unfortunately, I think it, those sorts of discussions largely are a diversion. Now, they're terribly romantic and they're terribly attractive, and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm as prone to them as the next guy. Mm. But they're not going to happen. No, the, you know, it, you know, the first winners of what was it? The, 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 the two winners of the take a different sport, but the two winners before rugby league broke away in the last two, they, they had you know the Yorkshire Cup and the Lancashire Cup. Mm. Uh, 
And mm. in the borders of Scotland, if it were me, I would be, you know, you invest there to to keep participation high mm. and to and to keep a high level of participation, if you know what I mean. In other words, yeah. not raw numbers, but you know, a disproportionate number of very skillful players who can mm. play the game mm. at a high that 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 should never be allowed to die. Yeah. But any decent program has to always have pressure coming from below. Um, now, in, so let me give you an example. If you play, if, if you if you're in a salary cap league and you don't cheat, I don't think you can win the Premiership without a significant proportion of homegrown players coming up through your own development systems. Yeah, because. There just isn't enough money in the salary cap to buy a championship-winning team and mm. import them all from elsewhere. Mm. It, it, I actually don't think it can be done um, unless you're... So let's take, for example, I was at the Melbourne Storm, I was in the NRL for a, a few years, a CEO there, and, and we did a bit of a re... And we, we always... We, we had an incredible run of success um, in a league that is meant to actually have cycles you're not meant to stay at the top yeah, for very long. Yeah. and one of the key points of that success has been um and if anyone thinks oh yeah there was a salary cap scandal i'm talking <laughs> after that that was that was over a decade ago yeah now, yeah being the side the cap um for, for many many years mm. they 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 constantly identify and develop huge numbers of players from 17, 18, 19 years old from other parts of the country because there's not much rugby league played in Melbourne. Yeah. So they recruit them at 17, 18, 19. They develop them and they are always moving players on at the other ends as their salaries increase because they've got other players mm. coming through. Yeah. Now, I think that's true at international level as well. Um, and if you haven't got, and some countries don't because their playing base is so small, but others don't because their development systems are poor. I think, I don't know if we mentioned this yesterday, if we mentioned this earlier. Yeah, so it, I, it'd be interesting just to hear your views on project players, the the residency qualification process overall. Like, Is, is it just the realities of, of the sport and like the world we live in today? Or, you know, I think I think Scotland fans would look at someone like, Duhan van der Merwe, who we've loved having for Edinburgh and 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 Scotland, but as soon as he's qualified, he's then moved away to Worcester. It it just doesn't maybe look that great. Well, okay. So there's two quite separate issues here, um, and I'll take them. I will take them as separate issues. The whole idea of qualification for international rugby I have got uh, you've read the book so yeah. uh, beautifully written by Michael Aylwin um, so you, you'll you'll know that uh, I'm we were and continue to be very very critical of three year qualification which has now gone to five I would actually go to seven mm. um now, because you have to be careful for unintended consequences, you're not careful, you'll end up, as has happened in other sports, with very rich rich clubs in richer unions starting to warehouse 15, 16, 17-year-olds. Yeah. 
saying, well, they'll, you know, that's okay because at 24 they'll be qualified for us. So I'm, I'm massively against that because it it really damages countries like Fiji and Samoa. Mm. Um, and uh, I think that's um, my big thing is about the growth of the game. So that, that, you know, that basically means that countries that have got quite well-developed rugby ecosystems benefit at the expense of those who don't. I mean, I feel pretty similar, by the way, about um, uh, medical staff um, being taken from um, underdeveloped countries and being given and then working in, in Western democracies. I, I, I just don't think it's right. Mm. So it's, a moral, it's a moral objection. Mm. Um, so in that sense, however, in that sense, I, I, I would like to see uh, that change even further. I would also have a like to see a change which says, I also think it's ridiculous that players who might have played one game for yeah. a country five years ago can't now go and play for another country. I mm. mean, again, I think that's nonsense. I mean, why can't... Um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, well, so, someone like um, Zach Mercer has had, what, two caps from yeah. England? And he's, he's Scots, yeah. Scottish qualified. And yeah. he if yeah. he had pin if he had, you know, had a three-year three, three grace period of whatever you want it to be, he would be pushing 50 caps for Scotland, 100%. And, 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 and that, that's a, thank you. That's a very good example. I mean, if England don't... Because at the moment, you get this, this rather um, unpleasant situation where you can't help but thinking people get picked for one game just to capture them. Yeah. Um, and then they never want it again. Um, and look, I make a very clear distinction here. someone like Cocker the Singer, who was of, um, or Rapin Aguni, who was a, who was a serving officer in the British Army mm. and lived in the ground. I mean, that's not the sort of player we're talking about. And you know, so you know the Bonapolans, who you know, who you know, Samoan or you know, Tongan ancestry. I think I'm right. I apologise if I'm not. Um, you know, but brought up in Wales educated in mm. England you know, yeah. the modern that that's that's just the way um migration patterns have gone but I, I i don't i think rugby should change make it longer to do it to residency should be more liberal in terms of allowing players after a grace period to represent another country if they are qualified mm. through parentage or birth or all that kind of stuff um and then the project player issue itself, so maybe there are three issues, not two. Um, how do I feel about that? Well, I totally understand why countries do it um, because their, um, their raison d'etre at the time is to get the strongest possible team on the park within the rules. Yeah. So, so, you know, I'm not criticising countries for doing that and lots of countries have done it, England included, you know, Ben Tio, for example, mm. um, Nathan Hughes. Um, they, the Irish obviously do it in a pretty uh, well-organised fashion, so do the Scots. Um, I'm not going to criticise any country for doing it within the rules. I think, however, that some of the rules are wrong. Mm. I wouldn't worry very much about, like your man from Edinburgh, the winger, 
and about going to is he going to Worcester, isn't it? Is that yeah, right? yeah, Worcester. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, as long as, and I'm sure they do, as long as his agent and the Scottish management are uh, switched on to the terms of his employment contract, it it, it shouldn't really make much difference. Mm. Uh, you know, I know that you get the question of, well, now they have to play in the down weeks because they're not playing in Scotland. And then, no, right, that's all true. But it is increasing the pool of players who can play for Scotland. Yeah. You know, so you've now, you haven't reduced the number of Scottish players, qualified, Scottish qualified players in the two uh, professional teams. And you've now got a very good player also qualified who happens to be playing in the Premiership. Mm. Now, I would think the argument would be strong, which says, well, now Edinburgh will be weaker because he's a fine, fine player. And that's true. But then we come back to what we talked about earlier, which is but that comes back to your own player pool and your own development pathways. Yeah. Um, if, if you are... Cause it doesn't matter whether you're... A, I mean, I've always felt this, and I suppose I feel it even more strongly now than than I did a few years back. I don't think it matters whether you're a club or a country, but any decent program has to always have pressure coming from below. Um, now, in, so let me give you an example. If you play, if, if you if you're in a salary cap league and you don't cheat. I don't think you can win the Premiership without a significant proportion of homegrown players coming up through your own development systems. Yeah. Because there just isn't enough money in the salary cap to buy a championship-winning team and mm. import them all from elsewhere. Mm. It, it, I, I actually don't think it can be done um, unless you're... So let's take, for example, I was at the Melbourne Storm, was in the NRL for a, a few years... CEO there and, and we did a bit of a re and we, we always we, we had an incredible run of success um, in a league that is meant to actually have cycles, you're not meant to stay at the top yeah, for very long yeah. and one of the key points of that success has been um, and if anyone thinks oh we had a salary cap scandal I'm talking <laughs> after that, that was that was over a decade ago yeah, now, yeah. being the side the cap um, for, for many many years mm. they 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 constantly identify and develop huge numbers of players from 17, 18, 19 years old from other parts of the country because there's not much rugby league played in Melbourne. Yeah. So they recruit them at 17, 18, 19. They develop them and they are always moving players on at the other ends as their salaries increase because they've got other players mm. coming through. Yeah. Now, I think that's true at international level as well um, and if you haven't got and some countries don't because their playing base is so small but others don't because their development systems are poor I think I don't know if we mentioned this yesterday maybe we did I, 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 not sorry let me edit that bit out about yesterday because it's not there that sounds that's terrible. okay no don't worry I, about I it I can't remember if we mentioned this earlier um, but Italy have got more registered players than Wales yeah you, yeah, you did say that, yeah. But they don't produce as many high-quality players. So you have to say the issue there is development processes rather than the player pool. Mm. Okay? 
and that's to do with coaching and culture and all, all that and schools and all that kind of stuff. So I think if you might, um, um, and maybe not the fans, but maybe it could be explained to them that actually a country like Scotland will stand or fall because it's a relatively. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Small country in terms of players. By, by looking at it and saying, right, yeah, we're going to have some very high quality development systems. Mm-hmm. We're not going to worry too much about, we're not going to go down that route of the third team because it's incredibly expensive and it probably won't be very effective. And it'll just, it, you, you take away the competition for contracts. And if there are players in a particular position at a particular point in time, you manage them out into another league yeah. and then possibly you bring them back. And if it's happened to me in my own career, you know, sometimes, you know, you, you'll find um, a player just blocked you know you've, you've got another one mm. um you know within a year and you're thinking you know what not in the player's interest we should move that player on and often if you can move that player on and you'd be grown up and mature about it and, and explain you might be able to get him back in three or four years time that they're now in the national team that should be easier because if they're qualified for scotland they're qualified for scotland yeah that, that's never gonna change um so i i think it's a Rather than get sucked into this, oh, we need a third team, or oh, you know, we we need to get them all playing in Scotland and all the rest of it. Actually, I think it's much more about have we got very good development systems? Are mm. we produce? Are we looking and saying, well, actually, there's a block there in that position. Uh, we need to move that guy out to get him developed, and we haven't can't do that within Scotland at the yeah. moment. Doesn't happen very often. Doesn't happen let's go and push him somewhere else and then we'll, we can still pick him from there mm. and, and all the way through keep trying gradually year on year on year on year to widen the player pool and at the same time improve the development systems mm. and people can't see that always and they're not sure where the there's always the money going where's the money going well a certain percentage of your revenue should be ring fenced um to enable that to happen because otherwise you run the risk over a generation of the standard of your national team 
declining. And that can't actually be fixed by project players. It can be mitigated, but it can't be fixed. Mm. Yeah, I think it's um, the the point you make, like when the system works um, in practice as, as, a, as the theory um, lays it out, like we talked about it before, Adam Hastings and Finn Russell is a perfect example of yeah. that, where yeah. Finn Russell goes to France, you say, well, okay, let's negotiate a contract with him. Okay, we can pay this much at Racing. There's no way we can justify no. that, but we've got no. Adam Hastings coming through. So I, I think that in those situations... Um, I think Scotland fans can get on board with it. I mean, the, the, the other part of this would be that, as you mentioned, the, the kind of the homegrown players in both England and France are becoming a lot more valuable, obviously. The, is the natural end point of that where, you know, bringing in non-English and non-French qualified players is actually not a, a good use of, um, especially the salary cap in, in England, for instance? No, because you, you, it's, a, it's a different system there. Because because there's a separation between privately owned clubs and the union. That that, that their agendas are not identical. They're not the same. Okay. Mm. Now England and France have got huge advantages. The biggest one being the size of their rugby market. So yeah. they have more teams. They have therefore there are more contracts. There's more money. There's higher broadcast revenues, etc., etc., etc. But each club really is just looking after its own interests. Uh, now we can have a very interesting debate about whether that's the best way to run a league, etc. But let, let, let's just leave that for a moment. And so, so, although there are some things in the system that encourage them to employ English players, so the GIF system, in, sorry, or, or French players, so the GIF mm. system in France and um, the sort of EQP system in England, um, it still leaves a lot of contracts for non-English or French players to take up. Um, and that's there. And, and the English and the French clubs play in that bit of the market that, frankly, the Scottish and the Welsh, and, and even the Irish to a large degree, because their system's different again, don't really play in that market. Now, let, let me give you an example. I, I remember when I was working the NRL watching Samuel Adraga playing for the Parramatta Eagles, mm. thinking, Jesus. Yeah. What a wonderful rugby union play he would be. Mm. I mean, there's, a, um, there's another guy at the moment um, who is also actually playing. <laughs> I don't know what it is about the Parramatta Eels, but there's another guy. Is it the C- um, that Sivo guy? Mike Sivo. Yeah, right? he's sensational. He is a total oh, freak, that guy. Well, I mean, I mean, and you can just see these. You think, hey, gosh, there's a... Uh, there's another guy just gone from my old club from Melbourne to the Queensland Medicals, Suliano Vinavalu. He's going to be wonderful. He's going to be absolutely wonderful. Corabiti was the same. Yeah. Now, Radraga ended up in, in, in Bristol via France, okay? But he was never going to go to Scotland or Ireland or Wales mm. uh, or, or Australia uh, or Australian Rugby Union. I should say, sorry, because or, 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 or New Zealand Rugby Union either, because you can't afford them. Yeah, they, 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 they just don't play in that market. The only three country leagues that play in that market at the real top end are um, England, France, and Japan. So you can't change that, and and wishing won't make it so. So 
countries like Scotland should say, well, that's fine. We can't change it. But we need to find a way where we have a slightly different agenda. So our clubs and the national team are meant to be integrated. And so we have to run a different type of system, a little bit more like the Kiwi system um, and the Australian system, whereby we limit the number of overseas or non-Scottish qualified players in it. A, mm. because we've got to have enough Scottish players and we can guarantee them places. Um, and B, we haven't got the monetary resources to compete at the very, very top end of the global market. Okay? Um, and anyway, is that really what we should be doing? It's an interesting philosophical question. Mm. So... You then go, all right, well, okay, so here's the number of contracts, and how many do we let go to England or France or whatever? And do we do they reach a certain level where or a certain age? You know, I mean, Skewer Hogg played, I don't know how many years for um, uh, for Edinburgh, so it must be, I don't know how many years, but they played a fair old number of years in the system. Mm-hmm. Um, is it really a huge problem? Well, of course, it weakens the team. And they, here it comes again. Does it really weaken Scotland? I don't think it weakens Scotland. Does it weak, weaken Edinburgh and Glasgow? Yes, it almost certainly does. Yeah. But if you paid the market rate for them and therefore kept them and you could assume they would stay for the market rate, which is a moot point, mm. because there may be all kinds of non-monetary reasons why they fancy going to play somewhere else for a while, that's taken a lot of money out of that could be spent in, in other areas mm. and and I can see that because oh, but we want Glasgow to win stuff we want Edinburgh to win stuff and I totally understand that and there's a there's a, a, an intricate balancing mechanism there um, and Ireland we can come back to Ireland Ireland get around it because they just produce I mean the Dublin player factory is extraordinary mm. um, it's probably right up there with the very very best in the world certainly Wales has got nothing um, yeah. to match it when you look at the number of players that that Leinster schools cup competition produces year after year after year and you look at the number of schools who are serious contenders for that now who didn't used to be you know you, they, it isn't like just the Black Rocks and the mm. Terraniers they're very very historic so there are there are other types of schools that come in now and are genuine contenders um that model is um a really interesting one and that has enabled ireland to support four teams albeit the other advantages we mentioned earlier um you know empty season and all the rest, empty market and all the rest of it um but it, they do generate a significantly high proportion. And actually, they produce almost... First of all, Leinster produces so many, they're now going to populate the other provinces. Right? So you see a lot of Leinster juniors now going to Munster or Ulster, Connacht, not, and, and, Connacht and, and even Ulster now, which never used to happen for, yeah. for other reasons. Um, and that's enabled them. They almost produce... You can never produce too many, but you know you'll now start to see increasingly. But where did he come from? And he's you know this guy playing in an English team. Think, oh look, he's Irish. He's from he's from he's from Leinster. Mm. And 
that's a much cheaper, more effective, and longer-term model. And again, it's player development, and the Irish Rugby Union benefit from that because they don't have to pay for it because all the costs are borne by 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 the schools. Um, and all right, and it happens to it's also to agree in Munster and to agree in Ulster. Schools rugby in Ireland is very very strong, and it produces a steady supply of, of high-quality rugby players, even though their player base is not enormous. Mm. And it's not. If you look at the Irish player base, it's, it's bigger than Scotland's. Yes, it is. But it's not It's not a ridiculously big number because an awful lot of Irish uh, boys and girls um, play Gaelic soccer or, or hurl. Mm. You know, uh, so... They don't have rugby league. I mean, that's the only. But yeah. neither does Scotland to any great extent. Mm. And, you know, England still. Yeah, but England's got such, so many more people. The fact that rugby league is dominant in a small part of the country is well, they can absorb it. You know, yeah. the fact that France is so big that although it's starting to change a little bit with um, the FFR's thing and the and the way they promote one side but then one said one as long as they're north of a line. Uh, the rise of places like Le- Rennes and, and the Rouen, increasingly, you know, it's starting to shift. Um, it'll take it'll take many many years. Um, you know, they, they, they you've got to look at way you've got to look at the what you can do rather than spend an all waste an awful lot of sound time saying, well, why can't we be like put put in your other put your put in your country's yeah. choice when actually. The framework they're working within and the culture they're working within is completely different. It's it's an interesting point around the private school dominance in in Leinster and that in Dublin mm-hmm. rather and that feeding into Leinster because um, Ian Morrison, the former um, Scotland flanker, oh, yeah. um, yeah. he he wrote a piece recently on a sort of Scottish rugby blog, basically arguing that Scotland in some senses actually have a similar um structure in place because ultimately when you look at the the teams that will the, the best schoolboy teams in scotland it it tends to come from edinburgh private schools so merkiston castle yeah, um stuart's yeah. stuart's melville watson yeah but i but i think for whatever reason people suggesting that as a a basis for sort of player development and success at the club and, and national level. It's, it's just, it's almost like it's taboo. It, it's not something that people want to um, pursue because obviously there's this tension with growing the game in Scotland beyond this small handful of, of private schools. Yeah. Who, but, who... but you see, I, I, don't, I think that's to confuse or, or rather to conflate two very different things. Um, and, and maybe it's because in Ireland, for example, Limerick, the, no, not the biggest, but the fourth, fourth biggest city, I think, in, in, in Ireland. So Dublin, Belfast, I think Cork's a bit bigger than Limerick. And in Limerick, it's a classless game. You know, the, the most, you know, right. it's played by all different classes. Whereas in Dublin, historically and traditionally, it's been a very middle class game based around private schools, Dublin 4, etc, etc. Mm. Ulster has traditionally been a Protestant game. I know you're not, you're probably, you know, but it has. You look, you look yeah. at it and that's changing 
as the intake of some of the traditionally Protestant private schools becomes more mixed. So you're getting more people from the other community playing the game. Mm. So, uh, and at the same time, you, you, you go, look, it's not either or. I, I've never understood this. Okay? Never understood this. And the example I always give is, well, think of one of our great, different sport. Think of our, one of our great Olympic teams, uh, Red Garrett and Pinson. You know, mm-hmm. Steve Redgrave went to a secondary modern school uh, in Marla. Yeah? yeah. Failed the 11 plus. It's in Buckinghamshire. They still, one of the few places in England still has a selection at 11. Failed the 11 plus, went to a secondary modern school, and Matt Pinson went to Eton. Mm. But in a boat together, they were one of the greatest um, uh, oarsmen this country or the world has ever seen. Just a phenomenal team, right? Mm. I don't buy this idea that somehow by using, developing your advantage in one sector or one section means you're not working in another, right? If, mm. I, I just don't get it. You know, the fact that most rugby players out of Leinster, and they're not, in, and, and actually they have widened it. They have. If you look at the, the schools in it now compared to 30 or 40 years ago, it has widened. It's, it is still predominantly private, but not exclusively. And it certainly hasn't stopped Ireland developing Limerick rugby, where private school input into that is, is very, very um, limited. Not entirely, again, not negligible because Cork's slightly different. Yeah. You look at what you've got and you build on it, in my view. You don't say, oh, God, we feel slightly embarrassed about that. That's nuts. That's absolutely crazy. Um, and I have, I have a different type of criticism of, of maybe of, of, of some of the English development systems, whereby I would say it's fair comment that the RFU and English rugby development has not really had a go, a serious go, over a generation or two because that's how long it takes um at certain parts of the country we're very very weak in highly urbanized areas yeah okay london particularly inner london rugby there's virtually nothing there Mm. Uh, you know you look at some big big cities um and there are challenges in big cities of course there are in terms of facilities etc etc but i england's got so many almost doesn't need to. Scotland, Mm. on the other hand, and I don't claim any great detailed knowledge of the Scottish rugby market, but Scotland needs to maximise its its anything it's got. So, again, we mentioned earlier, you don't, you know, the borders, if it's well managed, will still produce a lot of players because of the culture of the sport within those communities. Mm. The Edinburgh private school system could i don't know how good bad or indifferent it is but you want to build that and supplement it because you're st- you're not starting from scratch glasgow is a fantastic success story um in a difficult market that you ought to be able to leverage into greater participation it's not a question of doing one or other of those three it's about doing them all mm. And, and then deciding how much resource to allocate given what you've got. Mm. I, I, I've never understood this, oh, we mustn't do that because we're already strong there. That doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense to me. It, it's in the same way that people say, 
Well, we've got to we've got to extend the reach of rugby. We've got to basically, um, you know, we've got to get new audiences. And I, gosh, I'm I'm absolutely passionate about that. But it doesn't it it doesn't mean that you have to go and get all your new audience from complete areas where at the moment you've got absolutely none. Mm. You can get bigger market share of what you've already got. You know, so you can say, well, yeah, yeah we're, we're pretty strong in Edinburgh, but could you be stronger? And the no. answer is almost certainly yes, you could. And, and, and so this growth thing, it doesn't matter, in my opinion, where it's from. You just want to get the numbers up. Yeah. Because you get into a virtuous circle. And if you get into a virtuous circle, things become much, much easier. And from, um, I saw it's super fascinating. And, and from, you know, your experience with the Melbourne Storm, for instance, or even with um, the, the Netball League, like, yeah. what, what were the sort of, I know the, it's probably quite a broad question, but the main things that rugby union could learn from those kind of organizations? Um, well, there's a lot of examples around the world of sport if you look and you care to spend some time studying it that can be used by any sports. Um, and I think culturally as a sport rugby union in certain parts of the world has been with a small c conservative yeah um it's i suppose the flip side of its of its of its heritage as well and also um that whole lost century thing where lots of the things that most other sports have gone through um rugby union was able not to do that because it didn't it chose not to and it didn't need to um because it was amateur um mm. and there were some great advantages to that as we say um but now i think that it, the, the game is still to quite a significant degree playing catch up um and look huge strides have been made i just don't think we're anywhere near where we could be and some of the things we do make it more difficult for ourselves. And, and, and then individual countries have particularly have particular issues that, that need to be addressed that don't exist in others. I mean, where I was brought up in Wales, you know, well, well, you know, it's a rugby country, which is culturally true. That, that mm. is true. It's, it's, it's always had higher participation in football, by the way. Um, but but right. the cultural resonance of, of rugby in Wales. Um, you know, someone once said rugby is a, is a is a game of small countries and minorities. Uh, it's not quite true, but it has a element of truth in it. Mm. Um, and it's the one sport that Wales can show itself as being competitive on a truly global mm -hmm. stage in a team sport. Although. I still have very, very fond memories of following, you know, the European 20, Euro 2016 semi-final. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that was one. That's the first time Wales had ever been at a European or World Cup since 1958. Mm. It doesn't happen very often. Yeah. Uh, but Wales has got some, you know, and, oh, where's an 
doing Grand Slam again this year, and they've won a number recently, and it's been a golden era for the national team. It has. Look at it historically. The, the, the last 10, 15 years has been a, a real golden era for the team. But the game's got some serious challenges. I mean, the, the regional sides are not strong. The crowds are not particularly um, uh, high. Hmm. The, the danger is you become a one-team country, the, the national team. And, and they're sitting right next door to a much richer, larger market. Mm. Um, there's some there's some real challenges there. Um, but I think I said in the same way you say to Scott, you look at what you've got and you build on that. And that's true for all sports: rugby league, rugby union, football. Never doesn't matter. You look at what you've got. You don't you, you don't waste your time wishing you had other advantages or fewer disadvantages. You're realistic and you look at it and say, right, well. This is the amount of resource we've got. This is where we are. The where do we where do we allocate the resources that we've got? Mm. How do we get more resources? But how do we allocate the ones we've got most effectively? Um, mm. And the, 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 there's always a tendency to keep putting resources in and using resources in the same way that you always have done, and that's not always, you know very effective i mean that, that's why you know that you hear it in wales oh we need to go back to the club system and come on guys <laughs> we have 18 first class in inverted commas clubs 18 yeah it's a market of less than or a market of about two million mm. i'm sorry that's ludicrous they talk about sydney being the most overpopulated sports market in the world because they've got nine nine rugby league clubs in the mm. city of five million okay so that's that's roughly you know <laughs> half a million for each club well you know if, if, if wales had a population of nine million then then you do it and it would still be overpopulated with clubs it's just it's, the fact that it used to be and people have very fond memories of it and then you look at some of the video and you watch these clips there's nobody there <laughs> Honestly, you know, this sort of mythical golden era when Aberavon against Ponty Creed was a blockbuster. I mean, it's, I'm sorry, it's just not true. Yeah. Um, and we, we've got to try and explain what we're doing. And we need to try and be realistic and take a long view and... Because these, some of these things take a generation to shift in any mm. significant way. And that's quite difficult in the modern era when you know, instant gratification and, and, and silver bullets, mm -hmm. and, you know, fix it now um, is terribly, terribly fashionable. I, th I think there's a similar rose-tinted view of when the borders were around. Because... Ultimately, you know, some great players came out of it, like Chris Custer plays, um, yeah, you know, Rich, Rich, Richie Vernon played, people like that who like were good Scottish players. But they, that was, I think they would have come through regardless. Look, and, look, Matt, good players will come, the very good players will come out, will come through any system, right? Mm. The, the, the job of a, of a governing body or a large professional club is to make sure there are more of them. And mm. that the standard keeps improving, um, and 
you know, it's like these, you know, and, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I think there are some things about the game that we need to, sh- to change, the game itself, uh, I do. But this idea that suddenly it's a terrible game and it was all so much better years ago, I always say to, to people, I think, again, it was in the book, and my Gareway feels even strongly, more strong about this than I do, because I think some of the some of the elements of modern rugby are are really pretty dull. Yeah. I mean, these, this goal line goal line stands, you know, whereby you, you go through 28 rucks making a millimetre at a time, you know, grunt and shunt. Yeah. I, 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 just terrible. Just a terrible, terrible thing to watch. Mm. But if you think, you know, oh, it wasn't like that in the old days. No, it wasn't. It was a damn sight worse. Go and have a look <laughs> on YouTube at some of the sort of 1970s Lions tests against New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, the sort of the epitome of, of you know, the, the, the myth of, you know, and look, I grew up with it. I watched them all play at the card. You know, Barry John, Gareth Edwards and Gerald Davis, JPR, David Duckham, Fran Cotton, Willie John, da 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 and all the legends of people, you know, my age. The rugby was terrible. I, I, I think... Mean, was, you know, I, I loved it at the time, but I don't look at it and I go, oh my God, they can tackle, there's no defence, where's yeah. the line speed, there's 50 scrums, there's there's knock-ons, it's just... And in, in amongst it, some absolutely beautiful bits of individual um, team play. Yeah. But, but, you know, if you, if you ever watch that Barbarians New Zealand game, again, from when it's 72, is it? You know, the, the greatest game ever played. You know, Phil Bennett, you know, look at the whole game. Watch <laughs> the whole game, right? Yeah. Seriously. I think... And, um, it was, and, and it was a great game. Yeah. Watch the whole game. Some of it was... If, if you put that on today for people, they, they'd howl you out of town. The, um, probably the match that or at least the televised match that is probably the most famous in Scottish rugby history is that 1990 Grand Slam decider, which as an, as an occasion, yeah, as an occasion, as an occasion, you know, it's, it's unsurpassed, but you watch it again and it's, it is genuinely unwatchable. And the referee, the refereeing, just the laws around at the time didn't make any sense. Um, Yeah. There's, there's definitely that rose tinted view of things. This idea that, you know, the game, and this is not just, just true of rugby, that there was a golden era and everything was brilliant is almost always complete tosh. Yeah. Um, the the other thing I wanted to get your, your view on was the the Pro 14 as a yes. tournament, as a product, um, what you think of it and, and whether you think this, what you think of the CVC investment and whether that can improve things right not a competition I spend an awful lot of time viewing it must be said so I'm I'm, I'm speaking very from very very limited knowledge here I mean there's only so many competitions you can keep up with yeah hours day. Um, you know, uh, I don't think many mutu- neutrals pay that much attention to it Introduction of the South African franchises may may help this. Um, the 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 Welsh aren't stronger. Mm. Um, the Irish are too dominant. Um, 
there are too many there are the, 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 the higher profile players for understandable reasons don't play enough mm. in the in the tournament or in the competition until the very final stages and like like the premiership and the top 14 as well it and this is just this isn't a pro 14 problem but it, it stems the pro 14 suffers from it probably more so than the others because it is without hopefully offending it uh, without it is a weaker product yeah um it's that it, it, it the narrative is very hard to follow and and that's because and this is true of the other comp domestic club competitions you go domestic let's call pro 14 domestic all right just for it so the three they, they you, you start with the domestic league yeah, you go to the Heineken Cup and the Challenge Cup. You go to internationals, and you go back to the league, then back to the Europe, and then back to the Six Nations, and then uh, you know. I mean, come on. Unless you're an absolute rugby head and a rusted-on diehard, it's incredibly hard to follow. Yeah. There's uh, the, what what us what us, but what sports marketing people would call the narrative is really really difficult it's not it's not easy to follow and one of my sort of arguments at the moment is we'll and it's because we have so much overlap and we don't put the season into blocks but the only way you think well why can't you do that well at the moment you can't do that at the moment because all three europe international rugby and domestic leagues are taking up too many weeks. All three of them. Mm. All three of them. You cannot, and the top 14 is even worse because they play 26 game season, right? So you cannot put the game in all three areas, so the European game in the three leagues. You cannot slot that into much fewer blocks with a much clearer narrative and far fewer overlaps, which will help the playing of the high-profile players, unless all three of them reduce the number of weeks they need to deliver their part of the package. All of them. Not, not one of them. You know, we've spent, we've spent 25 years saying, we're not making enough money, what's the answer? Put on more games. And yeah. if you're not careful when you do that, you lose the narrative and people lose interest. Mm. Okay, we're not the only we're not the only sport that's done that. English Super League rugby league's done exactly the same. It starts in February and ends in October. It's ridiculous. Mm. It's ridiculous. But at least they don't get interrupted a lot. They're just too long, so that the teams play each other too often and people get bored. Yeah. Uh, you know, less can sometimes be more, and until all those three parties agree that they will reduce their the number of weeks they occupy, not by an awful lot. It's interesting, when you do the work, um, and unsurprisingly I, I have, it, uh, and look at it, right, what could it look like if, you know, you take a week away from the, the internationals, you take 
a couple of weeks away from the Premiership and you take a week away from Europe. You, 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 find, you basically collectively lose four or five weeks. The whole thing is changed. Mm. And that, I think, would do an enormous amount of good for all three domestic leagues. Well, well certainly the two, the, 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 the Pro 14, Stroke 16 and the Premiership. France is slightly different because obviously people forget this. You know they've been playing for that for the Bouclier for you know well over a hundred years. Its mm. heritage and tradition is is way 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 above anything else in European rugby, club rugby. But I think that would help in directly answering your question. The Pro 14 and 16, whatever it's going to be, it would help if you could play it in much bigger blocks that people so that it, they have their time in the sun. Um, I also don't think that the Pro 14, <coughs> excuse me, needs to be in um, conferences. Mm-hmm. We are obsessed in this country, and it's the football influence again. Um, we are obsessed in this country. We've got a league of, doesn't matter the number, we must play each other home and away. Mm-hmm. Well, why? I mean, the NRL don't play each other home and away. NFL don't play each other home and away. Yeah. The A, the uh, the AFL don't play each other home and away. They say no. We've got room for this many games. We'll work the fixture like we'll work the fixture list out that way. And 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 that's what we should be doing. We 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 should decide how many weeks we can, given the other requirements of the sport in this part of the world. How many weeks can we legitimately allocate to the domestic leagues? How much can we legitimately allocate to Europe, and how much can we legitimately allocate to international rugby, and then might and then and reduce the overlaps, if not to zero, then to far far fewer than we've got at the moment, and not just the overlaps, that we allow the competitions to breathe. By, you know, you can, for example, as I say, I've, I've played around with it. You can actually get a domestic league done and then play Europe in an eight-week block once it's finished. You could do that. Yeah. You can't do it now. It's too many weeks. Can't can't be done. Mm. But you could. You could. You could. You could. You could basically play the domestic. It's too detailed for a, for a podcast, but you know, it requires all three who traditionally have fought each other for for weekends. Because that's what it's been for the last 25. No, we want that. No, we want it. We want it. If everybody took a bit less, I firmly believe everybody would be a bit better off. I suppose that's... Yeah, you're asking teams to sacrifice a home game in some instances. And, ah, and the see, gate receipts. There you go. You, you've done it as well. I, no, I, I'm not saying... I'm just but trying to get... I'm trying to no, put... Well, actually, the, what, what happens, of course, is... What happens, of course, is at the moment, the squads are far too big. Because we play too many games. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Premiership play the Premiership. They play the Premiership Cup. They play the. It's just it's ridiculous. And they play age group. They play. So we're 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 adding on costs to have bigger squads and not just bigger squads. Because when you have bigger squads, you need bigger support staff and bigger coaching teams and etc. 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 And everybody likes to add on another team. Because 
people like it. Teams are really expensive. I remember when they started the academy system in England, that the, the philosophy was we're not going to run a team. We're not. Because a new team is a coach and a manager and a physio and a strength and conditioning and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Here we are 10, you know, we go on 20 years, everyone's done under 18s. Everyone's done under 16s. And I just don't think that's what professional clubs, certainly in, a, in an English type system, I don't think that's what they should be doing. They should be running a squad of, I don't know, 38? That's it. Mm. Maybe 40. No overlap. Okay? And if you lose, when, when the internationals are playing, you're not. And you, at the moment, you've got squads in England, if you add in their academies and all the rest of it, they've got more than 55 people on the payroll. And you can't tell me that that reduction in cost wouldn't more than compensate for losing one or two home games. I, I'm sorry, the numbers, you, you, mm. you're not right. Mm. The numbers are clear. Um, so I say that's a very much broader answer to a question about the Pro 14-16, but I think it's very, very hard to answer about Pro 14-16 without looking it within the way that European rugby is structured. And so, I mean, I think... It makes a lot of it would make a lot of sense to. Or I understand the arguments around a South African team or even Italian teams coming into a British league and it just not resonating with your average fan. Would a would a and, and you get to the situation where the Pro Fourteen is trying to market, you know, zebra against the cheetahs. Yeah. And, yeah. I know. Yeah. Yeah. It and, just and, and, you know. And the Super Rugby had the same problem. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, it is a lot easier, and, and look, but there's no getting around this. It's a lot easier to market a one-country competition. Mm. Yeah, it is. For England and France, have a lot of advantages in that sense. But the fact is that no other Europe, no other country in the world of rugby, other than Japan, has got a big enough market to run a viable domestic-only competition. So. It's a waste of time to fret about the fact that it can't be done in Wales or Ireland or Scotland or Italy or South Africa or Australia or New Zealand. Just go get on and get the most attractive competition you can from what you've got. And and then will that always be a disadvantage for a multinational league? Yeah, it will. Yeah, to be honest, it will. Hmm. But you can't change that. You know, that horrible... That's not a horrible cliche. It's a good cliche. It's a nice cliche. That that cliche you hear from sports people all the time. Control the controllable. You know, I know it's become so well known that since... Was yeah. Michael Johnson or Ed, Ed Moses is one of the two popularised it. Um, it. It applies to the administration of sports as well, you know. It's like you're running track and field and you'd like to have, you'd love your your athletes to be as good as the Kenyans, but mm. they're not. Yeah. Well, what do you do? Just give up? No, you just, you try and maximise the most you can from the situation you're in. And what's your, what's your view more broadly on private equity, CVC style money coming in? Because it seems to have been broadly accepted as a positive without maybe being subjected actually to that much scrutiny? Um, I'm, I'm 
it would be ludicrously hypocritical of me to be say I don't like private capital. I, I use that phrase quite deliberately coming into the sport because that's ridiculous. Because mm. I do, I, and, I, and I've made a living and my second career out of it. You know, yeah, going back, you know, and and, and but any organisation, this is never mind sport, to, but any organisation, why do they require private capital? The, the reason they require private capital is that they can't generate enough capital internally to do all the things they would like to do to make higher revenues, a multiple of revenues down the line in the future. You know, that's why companies debt finance that's why companies look for investment and if the investment comes in which in sport means you in exchange you give up a percentage of the revenues you've already created yeah the 10% 15 whatever if you use the money coming in to and allocate it to developments that lead to increased revenue down the line then that's a really good idea because you won't miss the 10% you're no longer getting because the overall generation of revenue has grown by a bigger percentage, so you're better off. If, however, the private capital that comes in, whether it's from individual high net worths or whether it's from private equity firms or from VCs, it doesn't really matter. If, if, the, if the capital that comes in, however, is used to shore up finance losses ongoing for another five or six years um, or is squandered by increasing um, salaries for staff or players or coaches because the cash is there so well it's easier to just you know well we can do that now <clears throat> well that won't generate a single extra pound down the line mm. um, then I think it's a, 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 a pretty poor idea. Um, I think there's some very good examples of private equity coming into sports and, and having a, a really um, positive impact. Um, I like the look of the the New Zealand deal with Silver Lake, which looks to yeah. me like being very much along the lines of <clears throat> putting a fair bit of that um, putting a fair bit of that investment into sort of creation of direct to consumer. Um, platforms and enhancing digital capability and unlocking revenue streams that currently they can't unlock because they can't haven't got the private haven't got the capital themselves to make that investment i think it can be really positive mm. but i think there are if it, if it goes into other directions and into other uses it can be really really damaging do you, do you think that CVC have their heart set on putting the Six Nations behind a paywall, for instance. I, I, I'm, I'm not. I, I wouldn't be surprised, but I don't know, so I shouldn't. No, say. fair enough. I think it's I'm, it's a. I'm not party to to, yeah. to what they're. Um, I'm not party to to the. Um, I have never seen. I've been told lots of things, but I've never seen what the what the deal is with the Pro 14 or the Six Nations or the, or the Premiership. I mean, I know, I think I know some of it, but 
I've never seen it in black and white, so mm. I'm always a bit cautious about commenting when, when you haven't got the evidence. Yeah, no, so I think it's just um, a question that we've asked, you know, if that is part of their strategy and, you know, that the, the SRU's aim is to grow the game in Scotland. That's its mission statement. That's its purpose. Mm. Um, I just, we kind of feel like there hasn't, there haven't been enough people asking those questions around things like putting Six Nations behind a paywall and how the money gets allocated, that sort of thing, which obviously the, people will be having those discussions, but um, it, it's potentially something that, you know, could have a, a, a bigger impact down the line. Yeah, it, it could. Um, it, it, it all depends. It's a trade-off, isn't it? You, you know, if, if putting it, if putting a, a get, and this is not a rugby argument, this is a whole sports argument. Now, there's always a trade-off between making your sport accessible to large numbers of people if you happen to be lucky enough to have that type of audience or whether you maximize your revenue to reinvest in the sport um, by maximizing your broadcast revenues which clearly you will have higher broadcast revenues if you choose to go into some kind of subscription rights based model I mean that's that's pretty self evident um, I'm I'm a, I, I'm, I suppose I sit in the camp that says I, I'm, I, I just want to look at and see what each individual deal looks like before I comment on whether that is overall a good or a bad thing for the game. Um, I think you also have to be grown up and recognise that if you do take investment from private equity firms, you know, they are very upfront about what they're on. So they're after a return. Hmm. So and, and that's their role. That's not. I'm not being critical. That's what they. That's that's their business. Um, so you know whether the whole thing is. A, is a, I mean, a lot of people are saying you know, it's a roll-up play. Um, and the, the broadcast revenues are undervalued. The broadcast rights are undervalued. Maybe true. I mean that's what they clearly believe, and, and time will tell whether that's right or not. Hmm. Great, Mark. Well, I think that's um, been really, really interesting. Thank you so much for your time. Um, right. I think you've given listeners like plenty of food for thought. Um, well, thank you for asking me. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.